You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. Joining me today is Nick Costa. Nick is the co-founder of BrainMate and has been working in product management since the mid-90s. In 2004, Nick joined Adrian Tan in founding BrainMates to champion the professional role of product management by delivering consulting and training to product folk. Welcome to the Product Edge, Nick. Thank you very much, Jade. I'm very excited to be here. Fantastic. I'm excited to be talking to you. So look, before we jump into it, can you introduce yourself for us and tell us a little bit about BrainMates? Sure. Well, um, my name is Nick Costa. I'm one of the co-founders of BrainMates and, uh, and also the head of training. So BrainMates is a product management training and consulting business. We really support businesses that are you know, trying to develop their product management teams, um, that are developing new products, and really need some help in their product management space so they can deliver amazing products to their customers. Um, we've been in business since 2004, so we've seen product management really emerge into what it is today. Um, I think it's a really interesting uh, change that we've seen over the last 16 years, uh, which if you think about was pre-iPhone, pre-Facebook. So the, the changes that those products have brought have also had a, a fundamental change to uh, the world of product management. Um, so it's very exciting to be kind of riding the wave that started well before, uh, we, we started well before the wave of, of, of product management started and um, very excited to be part of it today. Fantastic. So, look, a lot of product management rhetoric focuses on the technical craftsmanship of product management. And I certainly notice that when I'm recruiting product folk for all shapes and sizes of companies. But today we're going to be talking about the human element. And we've discussed previously that product management needs to understand human behavior and um, look at some of those adaptive skills, which I know you're really passionate about. So what do you mean when you say adaptive skills and adaptive product teams? Well, I think... uh by contrast, before we talk about adaptive, I think it's worthwhile talking about the technical. So the technical are the kind of the, the skills you'll read in the in the textbooks. So it's about agile processes or writing requirements or doing customer research, all of the things that you can almost put on a tick list and say, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. Tick, I've completed the task. So they're, they're certainly very important things for people to, to recognise and, and to actually follow through with and, and turn into a and sort of a, an overall process or approach. But in addition to that, in partnership of that, are the more adaptive skills, the kind of the human skills, the fuzzy skills um, that are involved in actually interacting with you know, the squishy humans that are far more complicated than a checklist can, can really adapt to. Um, so the adaptive skills are all about how do we work with customers? How do we work with each other? How do we adapt to the changing environments because no one product team is the same as another product team? Um, No marketplace is the same as another marketplace. And how do we also adapt to internal and external change in the marketplace um, almost preemptively so that we can, uh, you know, continue to keep our businesses strong and our products working effectively? 
And certainly in this year, it's been a, an incredible highlight of how some companies have been able to adapt. Others have been in situations where adaption is just almost not an option. And others have, have failed to adapt when they may have been able to do so. Um, so it's been a fascinating year from a product perspective to see how the disruptions from, from bushfires to, uh, to, you know, to lockdowns and everything else in between um, have affected us locally and, and globally. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I, I noticed, um, unfortunately, with COVID, that product management as a discipline seemed to have been affected a little bit more disproportionately than, than other disciplines, mm. engineering. Have you seen um, product folk and, and product teams adapt to, to the environment and the situation? Well, I think it's, it's a bit... The nature of that really comes back to the, the type of business that they're in. Um, so some businesses have just clamped down and said, well, where can we reduce costs um, and have tried to pull costs out of their organisation? Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing when, when the marketplace contracts. But I think that uh, choosing to pick product managers sometimes as the, uh, the areas to reduce costs from is a bit like taking the engine out of the car because the things are too heavy. Um, it's, it's not the right choice to keep your business moving in the right direction. Um, product management as a, as a function, let alone the people within it, is a, is a core engine to driving the, the business forward um, through maintaining and delivering products into the marketplace. And if, if, if the business is removing product people from that, then they're also removing their innovation engine, which is the one thing which is going to get them out of um, the difficult situations that we face. Very true, very true. And I think um, Adrienne said something very similar when I spoke to her last time. When we're looking at adaptive skills, I, I know when I talk to product folk and they ask me, you know, what should I be upskilling on and what, what skills are in demand? It does tend to focus on the current trends, whether it's data analytics or AI or mobile technology. Do you think product folks spend enough time focusing on their adaptive or their soft skills? Um, I don't think they do enough. And I think that's partly because the environments aren't necessarily conducive to actually practicing them, except in the wild. Um, actually have to use them. Um, there are very few situations where a product person or really any business person says, look, let's just make a mock workshop so we can practice some, some skills. Um, it's how do I do this while, you know, skin is in the game, while you're, you're on show. Um, unlike a sporting team that does a game every now and then and practices a whole lot, we essentially play the game all the time and never practice at all, um, which is kind of bonkers when you think about, you know, the, the, uh, anything as a profession, that we never really practice what we do except when we're actually doing, doing the job. We make it very difficult for us to create situations where, uh, we can fail safely. Usually if we fail, it's, it's usually a high, high stakes. And so a lot of the rhetoric around fail fast, fail, fail, fail early is, is good in principle, but in practice it's actually really hard to do because no one wants to feel that failure. And so there's, there's a lot of resistance to, um, to making mistakes. And when people need to practice these things, we need to practice making mistakes. We need to practice getting things wrong um, before we actually are making the mistakes and we are getting things wrong. Um, and I think those adaptive skills are what happens when things aren't working properly. 
How do you work with a team that isn't meshing well together? How do you deal with a situation where um, a marketplace is, has, you know, has fragmented in some way that you weren't expecting? How do you role play those situations in, in a safe environment? So I think the, those adaptive activities, those adaptive practices are something that we need to, to focus on and to create time for in our businesses, even we feel like we're rushing just to survive sometimes. It's important to take a breath and work out where our, how do we play together so that we can deliver outcomes more effectively. Absolutely. I, I love that. And I imagine that ultimately comes from leadership and um, it has to be top down, right? It, the teams need to feel safe and in, a, in the right environment to make mistakes without fear of retribution or, or judgment. So does that really need to be driven from the leadership team? It's, that's an interesting question because I have kind of, I, I completely agree that if it's led from the leadership team, great things will come. Um, if it's not led from the leadership team, then it can feel like an uphill battle. But I think that at the same time, um, it's important for any one individual to ask themselves, how can I do this? How can I make a difference? How can I get together with one person and practice a thing before I go and do a thing? It does. I think sometimes we build it up as too much of it, like organisational change, um, and it's got to be driven by something. It's got to be a huge project. I think it's it's valuable to think what's the smallest increment of of activity I can do that might make some small change. Um, so, for example, if you're about to do a customer interview, don't walk out and interview a customer cold, reading from your script. Find a buddy run through that process with them and see what you get right, see what you get wrong, get a little bit of feedback from it and, and kind of fail in a safe environment or practice in a safe environment and you'll learn a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it's, it's fascinating when we do this even in the training course. Um, we do a, a sort of just a small, a tiny small uh, five-minute customer interview um, and it's completely made up with made-up products and made-up customers that we're projecting through the, uh, through the course. Um, but people kind of come out of it going, wow, I really made a connection with that fake customer in just five minutes and we discovered things that we we didn't know before we started, but it didn't come from anywhere else, it just came from that experience. And so that that little bit of learning, even in a practice environment, can be valuable for when you take it uh, out into the field. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. And uh, something that I've introduced with my team at Middleton Executive during the pandemic is, is role-playing. So when we have our team meetings every morning, we just quickly role-play different scenarios that, that we face in our in our day-to-day work. And it's amazing the little things that come out and how people are going, wow, I didn't think about it from that perspective or I've learned this. And there's that nervousness and people get shy and apprehensive and we're, we're just one team, right? Um, so I can imagine that said, creating those environments and situations so you can practice those skills is really powerful. But at the same time, I understand that, you know, people potentially shy away from it. Mm. It's interesting, really interesting. So look, do you think product management, you know, potentially runs the risk of becoming too focused on processes and, and frameworks? Oh, absolutely. I think that it's it can almost shackle what we do. It doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. And I think that an obsession with processes and frameworks um, can actually feel like it binds us which is ironic because what we pitch is about a process and a framework as part of our business. But under the hood, there's also how do the, how do the human elements interact? 
Um, if we if we simply follow a process and we're not take, paying attention to the way people are interacting with that process, then we're kind of missing the whole point. Um, any particular process or framework should be there to to provide the the scaffolding to make it easier to work with the people that you're actually interacting with. If you're trying to make up a process while you're interacting with people who are complex and different every time, then it's just extra cognitive load that people have to deal with. So the process provides the structure and then you can almost free yourself to adapt and change to the, to the environment or the people that you're working with. Absolutely. So then when you, if a team was to become, you know, too focused on the, what we're doing and how we're doing it, you run the risk of paying little regard to the environment or the broader organization, which could ultimately cause, you know, friction in relationships and and organizations and how they work together. How do you overcome some of those challenges? I think the, Part of it's asking the question of different teams and then an organisational view as to, as to why are we doing this? Um, I mean, why is it such a powerful question? And you can apply it in so many different situations. But in that situation, if you have um, a team which is wanting to work one way and another team that's working a different way and there's a, a, an interface break uh, for some reason, you might take them both aside and say, well, why are you doing it that way? Why are you doing it this way in the different team? And what's your intent? And does the intent boil up to the larger strategic intent of the business? Is it a shared intention? If so, well, then let's find out what tactically we can do to fix it. If strategically the intentions are different, you've got a, a higher level problem to solve and you can forget about the individual process problems because the goals actually are different. Um, and I think that the it's it's really important when there is a almost a tactical disagreement to always bubble up to what is the intent of an individual or a team or a silo, and are those intentions aligned or are they misaligned? And when you get to that level of of conversation, it is a leadership conversation, but it's one that product management is often steeped in because you're always interacting with different different teams. Um, once you get to that level of conversation, now you're having a valuable conversation. Um, now you're actually talking about the important stuff rather than working out, well, was that story written properly in JIRA or should it have been in the, in the description line or should it have been in the title line? Like, did it help us achieve our goal? Yes or no? Then let's take the action that helps us get to our goal more effectively. Yes, I love that. I think um, having that intent, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve? What's the result? And how do we get there? will really help a lot of teams focus on on the result and the outcome instead of just doing the activities for the sake of activities or just following processes for the sake of, of a process. So, Nick, if I'm a product manager listening and I'm sat there thinking, you know, how are my adaptive skills? How do I need to develop these? What, what are some of the skills that you think strong adaptive product teams should have? Um. I think part of it's getting an understanding of a sort of individuals and teams' strengths and weaknesses as people. Um, I <laughs> on a, on my little bio on the website it talks about my love of role playing games and Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. And I grew up with that as a kid, and so my my background from the you know the, the early eighties and, and role play kind of weaves into here. Um, but I think it's interesting if you were to create a character sheet for yourself and to describe your strengths and weaknesses um, and then mapping that against each other. 
I think that's actually a really interesting way of working out, well, what are you good at? What are you not good at? I mean, ironically, one of the joys of, of the game is actually building a team that have individual strengths and weaknesses that collectively complement each other. You'd have a fighter and a wizard who'd go to battle together. Two wizards usually fail, two fighters usually fail, but one of each is actually a powerful combination. And that's kind of how you should be thinking about building a team. How do our technical skills work together? But then how do we interact together as a, as a, as a, a, a partnership and deliver better outcomes as a unit? How, does the, how do the parts become greater than the, uh, how does the whole become greater than the parts? Okay, and do you think that happens a lot on the ground or do you think people just get stuck into going to work and doing their jobs or do they take the time to actually sit down as a team and, uh, and work out their, their strengths and weaknesses and how they can complement each other? I think this is, this is our challenge and it's not just a product management challenge. It's, it's basically an organisational challenge. It's to try and squeeze out um, a chunk of time where we can just kind of breathe, um, where we can do productive work that could end up being unproductive. And that kind of sounds weird. Um, we had a presenter at one of our conferences at Lead in the Products some years ago now, um, uh, who was out from Sweden. And he described this concept of a product jam. And so just like a jazz musician would, you know, a bunch of jazz musicians would come in and they're not actually trying to make music. They're just trying to mix the sounds and play with each other's sound and find a rhythm and a beat between each other's, each other's groove effectively. Um, I think that the intent of that isn't to come out with a recording that they can then sell. The intent of that is to just work together and experiment and bounce ideas and sounds off each other and maybe some magic will happen but maybe it won't. And having the, the space to, to create without necessarily uh, a desired outcome, I think is a, it's a privilege, it's a luxury, but it's one that actually uh, is a, I, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a, um, uh, it's a force multiplier, that if you can do that once and every now and then, what you end up doing is you end up sharing a combined knowledge across the team. You work out what sounds work, what ideas work, what sound ideas don't work. How does one person's idea build on top of another person's idea? Um, what are the what are the sounds like? You know, fingers down the chalkboard, and what's the, that sweet jazz beat that may come out of it? And I think that the the practice of saying, look, every one hour a week half an hour a week, maybe an hour a week is probably more effective. We just want to have an idea session or we want to share a particular topic. We just want to riff on something and see where it takes us. And it's expected to be a waste. So if it's a waste, no harm, no foul. But the chances of actually sharing ideas amongst each other are much higher if we actually make the time to do so. Okay. As you were saying that about the jam, you just reminded me of a story I heard about... Um, that Queen and David Bowie song, Under Pressure. I don't know if you're a Queen fan, but I absolutely love them. And apparently they got together after dinner and just had a jam and that song is a result, but they never actually planned to make music together. So what amazing outcome from just having a jam. <laughs> absolutely. And it's those sort of things that create opportunities. If we're yes. pedaling so hard and everyone has their, their head down, their tail up, um, doing and we're sort of in our swim lane, in our track, we negate the ability to interact with each other. And so 
to, back to your earlier question, we actually have to deliberately create these opportunities. No one's going to give them to us. We actually have to take them forcibly out of our calendars and put them somewhere so we can say, this is special time. It's important time. It's valuable time. And I think particularly when we're operating in remote environments, um, when it's very easy to disconnect and it's much harder, there's, there's a friction to just connecting, even though it might be a mouse click away, it's still a, do you have time coming to the, the, the setting up a Zoom call is still an activity as opposed to spinning your chair around and having a chat. Um, now more than ever, we need to try and make space for these conversations so that we can collaborate together. Definitely. And I was just going to ask you about that. You know, for product managers, especially where their role is so communication focused and across so many different teams, how has COVID and, you know, as all being propelled into remote workforce so abruptly, how has that impacted everything you're talking about? Well, it's hard for me to, to kind of give an external view because, you know, like, we've had our own own experience. Um, I guess from the, from the Braymates team experience, which is the one I can share directly, uh, initially we were not a remote team. We were 100% face-to-face. Our clients were face-to-face. Our training was face-to-face. Our communities were face-to-face. Excuse me. And we had to, we had to pivot. We had to think, how do we do this? So initially, we did it clumsily, um, but now it's it's quite natural for us to jump onto a Zoom call um, and talk to each other, and we make time to have our team meetings. We make sure that everyone comes to those team meetings so we have that sort of playful interaction. And the the, the, the weekly team meeting isn't necessarily a time to, to go through a strict agenda and make sure everyone's, you know, delivered their tasks. That's more of a project meeting. This is a time for us to just kind of exhale collectively and go, how you doing? What's up? And we'll have a little fun little topic so that everyone gets to share a little bit of their of their life um, so that we bring the whole team together um, on to in just at least once a week to have those conversations. But I think we've, we've evolved uh, over the over the year from feeling a little bit uncomfortable about it to it's just what we do now. And how has how how has that impacted? learning and, and and training you know are people learning as effectively online is it as engaging how what, what does that look like so in in march when we effectively said we can't run uh training courses face to face anymore we considered it was too dangerous everyone's closing down their offices um we effectively ported the face-to-face training into a combination of zoom and miro boards we wanted to um we wanted to replicate the in-house experience in the online environment and what was really important to us is is that we kept that face-to-face feel but did it in a way which was effectively COVID safe in in that particular situation now the outcome of that was really interesting so we again had a class of 16 people we again broke them into four groups of people and we used the zoom breakout rooms so we really it was a good um uh, metaphor effectively for the for the physical space but what was really interesting was that even when everyone was distributed, uh, they were all working together on the sort of the mini projects we we're working on. Um, and where in the in the training room environment, often you'll have one person who will stand up next to the flip chart with a with a sharpie pen, um, who will be filling in the post-it notes. Two people will be engaging with that person, and the third, fourth person will be having a little bit of a nap or be disengaged. Uh, it was a fairly fairly uh, repeatable trope that you could experience. Yeah. In the online environment. 
everyone effectively had the Sharpie pen. Everybody could see what everybody else was doing at the same time. And so the engagement actually increased um, when we ran the courses online because now everybody was involved all the time, um, which was really fascinating. So even when they broke into their little groups, everyone was participating, they were moving their own little post notes around um, and everybody could see what was going on. So by, by the end of the course, people were exhausted, but they're exhausted not because they had just been staring at that camera on the, you know, above their monitor for the whole time, but because they'd been thinking and engaging and they were energized, tired by the end of the end of the course. And so that was a big that was quite a big change. Definitely. And I'm thinking back to leading the product um, earlier in the year and you know, just the engagement this year was just through the roof. And I think, you know, there's obviously benefits of in-person conferences, but when the speaker is is speaking, you know, everyone's sitting there listening. And then, like you said, you know, some people might switch off, they might be on their phones and, 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 and perhaps not as engaged. Whereas it really felt this year, although it was online, with having the chat and the story and everything running along, the engagement was just through the roof. And being able to engage with your peers about the content in real time without interrupting the speaker was just such a good experience mm. that I walked away actually retaining probably more than in those sometimes in-person conference. So it was outstanding to, to see that, that engagement. Well, that, I, th- I think that was another really good example of how the community came together um, and they were on a shared journey. So something that we've practiced this year is to try and take that um, that in-person experience and rather than just replicate it but try to level it up and it's been surprising and delightful to see how those opportunities have actually improved the the connectivity of people rather than diminished it Um, I mean I remember casting my eye across the the auditorium at the ICC down the road here in Sydney um, and seeing the room full of product people staring at the stage uh, enjoying the show but their ability to interact with each other was minimal because like, shh, don't make a noise. Um, but in the remote environment, everyone could participate and engage with the conversation and be outraged with the statement and have their own conversation um, and jump into other people's conversation completely seamlessly. Yeah, absolutely. So what could product folk do to develop their adaptive skills Right now, they're sat there listening, thinking, right, they want to work on this. They want to bring it into their, their workplace. What, any tips, suggestions on, on things that they could do? Um, I think the first thing is to essentially open yourself up to empathise, not just with the customer. So, again, it's more, almost a, a, a service design type activity, empathise with the customer. But one of the things we should always be trying to do is to ensure that we are empathising with the people around us. What are their needs? What are their goals? Uh, Do we have shared goals? Do we have misaligned goals? Um, What are the, are we all on the same mission? Um, And it's interesting when people talk about mission, I think, you know, they often think about the mission statement, the plaque on the wall. I tend to think about the mission more, uh, more tactically, more like mission impossible uh well, you know cue cue the the theme music <laughs> uh, in any particular week is there that sense of urgency is there that shared activity because if there's not everyone's just kind of ambling along doing their thing so i think empathizing with other people listening to what their goals are and trying to ensure at the beginning of whatever time cycle is appropriate you know whether it's a week or a day or or a, you know a quarter 
are we all on the same mission? Whether that's a week mission, a daily mission, or a corporate mission, is there is there that alignment? Because I think that is a um, it's a, it's a, well, it's, a, it's an aligning force. It gets everyone pointed in the right direction, um, doing the same thing with the same cadence, which suddenly brings people together. And I think with the the fascinating thing to me about product management is that the product is almost the least relevant part of the story. Um, it's really all about people, and the product is just the artifact that we use to exchange value between people. Um, so the empathizing, understanding your customer, understanding what their needs are, understanding what your stakeholder needs are, and building that shared mission, I think are some really critical things for us to be doing uh, at the moment. I think that's a really important point to make that I think, you know, taking the time to understand the internal organization and and the people that you work with because we're all human and I think sometimes people can get too caught up in their job or like you said that the product and and focusing on that um, and and lose that people element so I think that's a really really important point um okay so I guess if we look at sort of technology tools and processes you know they change so quickly um, and that's definitely the case across product management if i were to give you a crystal ball nick what what predictions do you have for the future of product Ooh, <laughs> i i love this kind of concept um i wouldn't call myself a futurist but i love sort of looking into the future um i think for me we've seen a trajectory of product management since probably the about 2010, we really saw an inflection point. So rather than going forward, I'll go backwards for a moment. Um, One of the critical elements of that was really the, was it sounds cliche, but was social media, but not because social media meant Kardashians and and, and use at your fingertips. The the thing for product people was that this combination of um, the ability for anybody to say anything to everybody. So essentially that's what social media empowered people. Um, and with the iPhone being the, the, their communication device in their pocket rather than their laptop was another key inflection. So now anybody can say anything to anybody at any time. What that means for a product is that you can't outmarket a bad product. If you've got a bad product, everybody will know. If you've got a good product, then anybody can know. Um, so the, the, the power has shifted from the marketing team back to the customer. The customer is now the, the lead engine of, of trust and referral for product people. Or for, sorry, for products. Mm-hmm. So for product people, it's meant that it really meant a shift in their role from as a product manager, you were literally just managing the product and other parts of the business were building it or selling it. And so, like, here it is, don't break it, we'll come back to it a month with an update. And that was fine. But what's really taken a shift and almost a, an exponential jump is the importance of product management in organisations. You have to build a good product for your customers or you'll fail. There's, no, there's nowhere to run. So now projecting into the future, um, we are seeing exponential change in just about everything that matters, um, which means, you know, buckle up <laughs> because it's... It's never been as fast as it is today, and it'll never be as slow as it is today um, if, we, if we look at that, that, that on-ramp, which means that we have to find ways and methods to adapt to change, to listen to our customers, to respond to competitors in real time, not in 
you know, uh, quarterly milestone time. Um, so product people will need to be uh, better sensors of information, as in, you know, sensing things, not 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 deleting them. Um, uh, they have to kind of get their, their Spider-Man Spidey sense working so they pr- can predict the future before it happens. Um, in, in all of that, there are other sort of technology changes which almost sound cliche, but I think they're, they're fascinating. So that with the congruence of, you know, sort of machine learning and what people sometimes call artificial intelligence, I'm a bit of an AI nerd, so I don't like calling it that, um, but sort of the machine intelligence that is, is bubbling up and is also its own, on its own exponential path. Um, it's not so much that that's happening, but the implications of what that means. Uh, so I have a bit of a saying that, you know, genius comes and goes, but stupid is forever. So, you know, every, every day, um, you know, kids are learning to drive a car. They've never driven a car before. Um, there might be some amazing car drivers, but they will pass on. They will pass away eventually. And a new generation of people come in and they have to learn how to drive a car first every time. And that's true for every learning experience that a person has. But it's not true for an artificial intelligence. It's not true for a Tesla car that has to learn how to drive. In fact, every every you know automated car that is learning to drive is sharing its information with every other car that humans can't do, except through training courses and books. So that collective learning is like this hive mind for uh, for machine learning. That to me is exciting and terrifying at the same time. Definitely, and I think that that is a whole another episode that we could uh, dive into again. Something you just said there, and I wasn't going to ask you about this, but it just came to to mind as you were talking. With product management, do you feel that there needs to be a a code of ethics um, or governance around that? Like if I think about lawyers and accountants and other industries, they're all governed by a code of ethics. Um, And and product managers are really, you know, creating these, these products and we talk about unintentional consequences so yeah, let me throw it to you. Do you think there should be a code of ethics for for product? Um, hard to say. So the, I've got a, 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 it's almost like there's too many thoughts popping out of my head to come out all at once. Um, the the simplistic answer is yes, um, but I think rather than a code of ethics, which I think is um, as soon as you have a static code, uh, it's it's already dead. And as I mentioned, things are moving too fast. Mm. I think that one thing we should be considering, and actually this is kind of falls into this adaptive framework as well, which is what does ethical product management look like? Um, how do you, if, as you qualify to be a product manager, um, which itself is still a very nascent um, concept, um, do you have to pass an ethical bar? Um, is it all? I mean, when we, you know, I have a, a, a growing child who's now twelve years old, but I've seen many um, sort of games on uh, his iPad, which when I look at them, going, that's not a game. That's a gambling machine. Um, you are clicking a button, it's whirling the wheel, and you're getting the endorphin hit of a win, and it's just do that over and over again. Now it might be framed as a game, but I think, is that really ethical? Should we be framing a gambling mentality for children who are still in, in junior school? So I totally agree that there's there's an element of, of ethics that should absolutely be baked into our product management thinking. Um, 
whether it's a, a sort of a product management university or academy of some sort uh, that is driving that, that we raise the bar for what it means to be a product manager. I think that's something that we want to see uh, play out in the future. And I think that is definitely a topic that I'm going to pick your brains on again. So maybe um, another episode we can dive into what ethical product management looks like because I'm absolutely fascinated by that. So look, Nick, you've been amazing. What's... Um, one question that I do like to ask everybody that, that comes on the show is, you know, what's been your greatest achievement to date? Well, I think, I mean, for, for us, on one hand, it's it's been in business for 16 years in the growing realm of product management. There's been over the 16 years. So we started in, in 2004. And in 2004, um, we knew what product management was, but barely anybody else did. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the value within an organisation that product management delivered was still just a, a tiny acorn. Um, compared to the the sapling that it's growing into at the moment. Um, so we've been through a number of sort of highs and lows with the business. Uh, so probably our greatest achievement is keeping it running, um, keeping it going strong. Uh, we've made it through the, you know, the global financial crisis. We'll, we'll make it through the COVID crisis. Um, we've, we've, you know, going through, if you think of a product life cycle, a very long extended introduction phase before product management as a concept has kind of hit its own product market fit. Um, just being able to, to sustain that and keep that vision alive, I think is, has been a, a great achievement for us. And we're excited about what's to come. Absolutely. And I'm excited to see what's to come as well. And then on the flip side of that, what's been um, your your biggest challenge or obstacle that you've had to sort of overcome in your career? Um, I've been thinking about this one. So uh, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, just about trying to strike that, that work-life balance. Um, mm-hmm. It's it is a challenge to try and carve out that time uh, to to you know be a parent to do the job and to find that balance with with family and life. Um, so that's that's always a big challenge, but that's everybody's challenge. So I was trying to think what what is probably one of the the, the biggest challenges. And again, it probably comes down to uh, to the different kind of what am I thinking? Probably some of the biggest challenges have been just just working with individual clients. Um, stepping into an environment where we actually know nothing about their product um, and having the faith that a, a product management framework and way of thinking will actually help them more effectively. So that's probably been one of the biggest challenges. Sometimes you step into an environment and we know nothing about their product in some cases, but we are able to deliver value very quickly uh, in those situations. And that's probably one of the, one of the bigger challenges uh, that we face. Definitely. And, um, you know, only being four years into my journey of, of running Middleton Executive, I'm definitely struggling with trying to find that balance and um, reassuring to hear that perhaps you never quite do, even when you're 16 years in, it's still a challenge. Yep. <laughs> so it's helpful. And I think it's a really important point that, that just being a business is a challenge. Um, we are a small business. We um, have, you know, we have, always have aspirations for, for great growth. Um, but the the day to day challenges of running a business in any environment um, can be can be difficult. And so, you know, as I mentioned, we faced the, the the credit crunch. And actually, it was just after that that things got a little bit hairy for us for a while. We we almost shut down the business, but then we you know grew back out of it and, and switched the business around. Um, so I think it's again, it comes back to that adaptability when the marketplace changes, when the environment changes, when your own team changes, how do you kind of take stock, take a breath 
And instead of just plowing forward into the, into the fire to say, hang on, we need a new strategy. We need to take stock and we need to change direction and we need to evolve past this particular stage into our new stage, whatever that might be. Um, and I guess that's probably the, the approach we take on a, on a daily, weekly and, and um, larger scales. Love it. Nick, I always love talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and experience with us. How can we stay connected with you? Um, well, uh, best way is to st- jump onto our website, um, hang on to our, you know, subscribe for our, our newsletter. Um, we send out newsletters about the events that we run um, and also, the, you know, little tidbits about the, the wonderful world of product management on a regular basis. Um, you can also find us on Twitter. Um, Adrienne Tan in particular is very active on LinkedIn, so she's a, a good person to follow. Um, she's relentless on there. And look out for her word of the week. Every week she comes up with a word, which is quite interesting. I love it. I love her word of the week. I've actually followed it now since since she started it at the beginning of COVID, so it's, it is fun. Cool, yeah, she's built that into a habit. But that's probably some of the best ways. So we're on Facebook, on Twitter, um, and and follow us on LinkedIn as well. Amazing. And I will include all those links and handles in the show notes. So lastly, before we wrap up, what would be your one piece of advice for product managers today? Cool. Well, again, we were thinking about this uh, earlier. So I think to me, it's um, uh, don't be afraid of change. I think product managers have to embrace change because change is going to happen. It's inevitable. Um, Don't resist it. Instead, look for opportunities within the change. I think the the best way to think about change is to be part of it. Um, The whole reason we create roadmaps and longer term plans is to actually create the future that we want to we want to see. Um, So when we see change, think about how you can create your own future uh, rather than being part of somebody else's. Definitely. I really believe in be what you want to to see in the world. So completely agree with that. Nick, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on to the, the Product Edge. My pleasure, Jay. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Product Edge brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.